Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mitten Politics. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the Electoral College and the popular vote and why the Electoral College is a racist institution from its founding and uh, kind of if, are there any things that we can do that might be able to change it? I have as my guest today, Ben Schroff, who is a student, a law student at the American University Washington College of Law. And so we're going to kind of discuss the legality of uh, any potential changes to the Electoral College system and uh, kind of where we go from here. We'll also talk about some of the history of the Electoral College, how it came into formation, um, how it compares to the popular vote, and some of the little intricacies that many of us likely have forgotten from our high school civics classes. I also will be introducing a new logo in the near future being worked on by a great friend of mine from my job. Um, and so stay tuned and keep an eye out for that. The new slogan for Mitten Politics is change is political. I truly believe that any, any changes that we want to make require political change. So when people say politics, oh, I don't do politics. Well, everything is political because everything depends on the policies of the people that we elect to represent us. I'm excited to have Joe Biden finally beginning his transition into office. And I look forward to the day when the only news we hear about Donald Trump are the court proceedings that may or may not ensue after he leaves office. If you listen carefully in this episode, you'll discover the wonderful voice of my cat in the background at a couple great points, chiming into the conversation, as most of my coworkers are quite familiar with in this work-at-home environment. The last thing I'll say before we get started is I intended for these episodes to be roughly a half an hour each at the start, and have found that it's very difficult to cover all of the intricacies of some of these topics in that time period. And so they may end up being closer to this hour time frame. though, of course, I won't extend the conversation just for the sake of adding time. And with that, we'll go ahead and get started with the, uh, the conversation. All right, so I've got Ben Schroff here with me. Hi, Ben, how are you? Oh, hey, fine, how are you? Good, glad to have you with me today to talk about the Electoral College and the popular vote. Oh, glad um, to be here. <laughs> as, as I'm sure you're aware, we've had lots of controversy about the difference between the two and which should matter more. So we'll cover a little bit in this episode about um, what the current system looks like. And then we'll also touch a little bit on the history, how we might change things, um, what faithless electors are and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, a lot of good stuff that I feel like some of it I may have learned in a civics class way back when, but I actually had to do a bit of research to remember all of the little finer points for this episode. So oh, yeah. I, maybe you feel the same. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Strap in folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> All right. So I guess let's start out first with um, just generally the, the easy one, the popular vote. So uh, what is the popular vote? The popular vote from my understanding is literally just all of the votes cast for any candidate at the federal level. Um, and it's just tallied up to see who has how many votes. Yep, absolutely. Cool. So as um, 
some of our listeners might know, uh, the popular vote has been won by a Democrat for um, all going all the way back to since you know George Bush's election, um, and and even previous to that because Bill Clinton won the popular vote. Um, however, in the year 2000 was the first time that in my memory that uh, the Electoral College actually overrode the popular vote, um, and then again it happened in um, 2016 when we saw Donald Trump get elected um, and it looked like it was possible uh, going into this 2020 election as well, but fortunately was not the case. So um, any, what are your thoughts about the popular vote? Do you, do you like it? Do you think it's more important? Do you think it's representative? What are your, your opinions about like the importance of the popular vote? Yeah, so from my perspective, the popular vote is right right there, the raw data of how the entire country feels. Um, and I, I can't really think of anything more fair than that, really. Um, a lot of people do say that it does sort of whittle away at the um, the representation of smaller states. But when it really comes down to it, there's only a few swing states in the electoral college system, which we'll get to later, that will really change something. So I, I don't think that the smaller states are too disadvantaged by an overall system. Yeah, and one of the common arguments I see online, people like to argue against the popular vote is showing a map of the US with like the congressional districts, for example, colored in by the party that they most recently voted for. Um, and when you do that, the entire United States looks like this giant red map with little bits of blue. But I think a lot of people don't realize that land does not vote and it shouldn't vote. If I own, um, you know, four acres of property, does that mean that my vote should count more than somebody who lives in an apartment? Probably not. Um, so you're right. We'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the Electoral College, which I guess since we covered the easy part now, we can start to dive in a little bit. Here so, we go. <laughs> in terms of the Electoral College, it's as many of you have probably seen the 270 to win maps. Um, there's you, the way that the electors are divided, um, you end up needing 270 to have a majority, and then that's what makes you win. Um, in terms of the total number of electors, there is one elector assigned essentially for each representative in Congress that you have. So one for each state or each house, uh, house of representatives member, and then one for each of your senators. And then there's three additional electors assigned for uh, Washington DC. Um, so that's how you kind of get the, the total number of electors, which would be that 538 electors. Um, for the most part, um, they, are required to vote the way that their state's popular or their state's popular vote goes. So that's why on election night you see, okay, uh, Biden is ahead with number of votes relative to Trump. And so Michigan gets called for Biden and those electoral votes are then assigned to Biden based on winning that state's popular vote. Um, Yep. And the only real notable exception to that are Maine and Nebraska, because the allocation of those electoral votes is based off of the state law. The states get to decide how those electoral votes are allocated. So every state except for Maine and Nebraska 
just have a winner take all. Whoever wins the state overall uh, popular vote gets all of their electoral votes. Whereas in Nebraska and Maine, they have it so the popular vote winner in each congressional district, one electoral vote is assigned for that district. And then the overall state vote goes for those two uh, electoral votes that come from the senators. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. That's that's why um, if you're looking at the the maps that have been projected, you see Maine with a slice of red through it for Maine's second congressional district went for Trump. And then Nebraska has the slice of blue because Nebraska's second district went for Biden. And so that's kind of how you ended up with, with that slight difference of um, those electoral votes. So thanks for sharing that. Do you know why it is that DC gets those three electoral votes? Yeah, so the 23rd Amendment to the Constitution gave DC no more votes than the least populous state. And so the least populous state right now is Wyoming, and they get three regardless because they're always guaranteed one House member and two senators. And so DC gets that equal amount, so they get the three electoral votes through the 23rd Amendment. Okay. Um, one thing I was interested to find, um, so like Puerto Rico and Guam um, and some of the other U.S. territories don't actually get any electoral votes because they're not considered states. Um, you know, obviously D.C. is not itself a state, but it still has that extra representation. Um, but they do interestingly get to vote in the primary still. So Puerto Rico, Guam, and the territories get to weigh in on the primary candidates as well. So some yep. people might and remember that. Um, American Samoa putting their, their votes in for Bernie and stuff during the primary. So, Yep. And just a quick little thing on that. That's because the, the political parties, those elections are through the political parties themselves, although facilitated by the states. So the political parties are essentially private organizations for organizing and what have you. And so they have their own rules in regard to delegate uh, partitioning and handing those out. So that's their own party decisions. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of times people think that um, that primaries are uh, like a federal type of election, but they, they really are the political parties themselves as an organization. Absolutely. Cool. Used to be a nice little smoke-filled back room. <laughs> right. Uh, in some cases, it still feels that way sometimes. But, oh, yeah. Um, so, I know in a number of cases, um, like, you know, 270 is the number to win in order to win the Electoral College. But if the right chips fall the right way, it's possible for each candidate to get exactly 269 votes. What happens in that, in, in that instance? So that's a fun little scenario where it would then go to the House of Representatives the presidential election would, that is. So um, the president would go to the House, vice president would go to the Senate. In the House for uh, what it's called a contingency election. So the House, they have it so each state has one vote. So if you're a representative from Wyoming and you're the sole representative, you're perfectly fine. You get to cast your vote however you like. Uh, for the, I believe it's the top three electoral college vote getters. And so then, uh, but for your more populous states that have more representatives, say Pennsylvania, for example, 
they right now have a split between the representatives where about half are Democrat and half are Republican, if I remember correctly. And in that situation, it's a little more dicey as to who gets that one state vote in right, the contingency they're, election. Because they're basically like a delegation from each state in the yes. form of whoever that state's representatives are. And they get a vote. And, and then the question becomes in that instance, do, do those delegations vote in a partisan manner where they choose based on who their party leader is? Or do they choose based on who they believe actually deserves to win, right? Because like part of me would like to think if there's somebody, if, it, if there's an electoral tie, but one of the candidates has a 5 million vote lead in the popular vote, that would logically seem to be the candidate to choose regardless of your own political uh, motivations. Though we've seen a lot of things over the last, decade that have led us to think that that may not be the, the case if given the chance. Oh yeah and th th that senate flip side is interesting too though because the BP election goes to the senate and each senator gets a vote so it's different for either chamber as well so that's an interesting little twist I suppose. <laughs> yeah and the weird thing there is you could end up with a president of one party and a vice president of another party and what <laughs> What an interesting White House that would make in that <laughs> circumstance. Absolutely. I guess the, the last thing I want to say just in terms of how the current, uh, the current system works is so these electoral votes are assigned and then, but the electors actually have to be um, chosen and then they have to officially cast that electoral vote. So um, like in in the current election, obviously there are a couple states that, at least at the time of us recording this, by the time this posts, the states will have all been decided, but um, the states don't have to certify their results for a couple weeks. And so there's still time for that to officially be certified. And then the electors actually don't meet until December 14th. And they're actually, from what I was able to find, chosen state by state based on that state, the state party of whatever candidate won. So for example, here in Michigan, um, with Joe Biden winning Michigan, then the Michigan Democratic Party would choose the 16 electors who would then ultimately cast their votes on the 14th. Yep, and some states even have it where uh, during the primaries they select the elector uh, candidates, if you will, and you don't see them on the ballot because you're voting for the presidential candidate. Right. And that's the thing that's kind of weird about this system is that even though you're voting for the president by name on the ballot, technically you're voting for the electors that will then represent the state popular vote. So it's, it's an interesting intermediary kind of system as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. A shadow election, if you will. Right. Right. So, um, to that clarify, they call it indirect, not shadow. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, so I guess the last thing, and then we can kind of go back and talk about kind of where the Electoral College came from, is I know there was talk about faithless electors um, who essentially would be an elector that ends up on that delegation and decides to vote a different way than what they have been elected to do. So. I, 
you know, an elector in Michigan, one of those 16 decides I'm going to vote for Trump anyway, what, what happens there? So that, that depends on the state too. Each state has their own rules. Uh, a lot of them, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's above 30. Uh, they, they have these things called faithless elector laws and those in and of themselves vary. But uh, some of the states, they, they'll find the elector for not going with the popular vote. And then some states will also cancel that person's vote and have a backup ready to come in and vote the way that they were quote unquote supposed to. Gotcha. Yeah, I know. Um, I think it was uh, Washington had that happen in the 2016 election. Yep. Um, and those electors were fined um, for voting differently than they were assigned to vote. And from there, we got Schiaffalo v. Washington. <laughs> yeah, well, and so that, you know, we had, is, that's the Supreme Court case that you're talking about? Yeah, yes. I, so the, 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 the Supreme Court case that was just handed down in July of this year, actually, um, that essentially honors those state laws about faithless electors and says that those are valid and states can enforce that. And even implied that for states that don't have those laws, that the states themselves could enforce that anyway, even if they don't have a law in the books. Essentially, it's better if they do have that law on the books, but a state could use that Supreme Court argument to claim that essentially we're going to do the same thing based on the Supreme Court decision. And truthfully, the likelihood that you would have a sufficient number of electors to do that that would change the outcome of the election is not very high unless you ended up in one of those exactly like 270 um, situations or maybe a 269, 269. Um, and there'd be, I'm sure, all sorts of legal challenges if that actually arose, so. Oh, you can bet on it. All right, so let's talk a little about where this electoral college came from. And then we can talk a little bit about what, what current feelings are about it. Um, the popular vote and what feelings are about that um, and kind of kind of go through some of those items. So um, from the Constitutional Convention of 1787 um, in Philadelphia of all places when all <laughs> eyes were just on Philly. Um, there we are. <laughs> it was it was that was where they all sat down deciding okay how are we going to have the president elected and at that time there were no other countries that actually elected their leader through a vote of the people. And so they were trying to figure out, okay, how are we gonna do this so that it's safe, so that everyone's voices are heard, um, and in some cases, so that they could protect their rights to slavery. Uh, we'll touch on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately what came out of this process was the 12th Amendment, which is what lays out how the Electoral College works and, and what it, it needs, et cetera. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about like what that process was in, in that convention? Yeah, sure. Um, so during the convention, they had multiple different avenues. And a lot of times it was about the actual structure of the government rather than the Electoral College itself. But essentially when they after they decided on what powers the president would have and what the balance of power would be, they came to this idea of the Electoral College. And this is, if I'm remembering correctly, it was sort of 
certain, not a last minute detail, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the most uh, pressing issue necessarily. Wasn't their top priority, sure. Yeah. Um, so they, they essentially, I, I got a lot of my information on it from Federalist 68, uh, which was written by Hamilton in the pieces trying to get New York to ratify the Constitution. And so the, the method that they came up with was each, um, each elector would cast two votes for president. And the top vote getter would become president and the second would become vice president. There was, there was no separate balloting for vice president when the constitution was first ratified. And, okay. and, and in Federalist 68, Hamilton was discussing how this allows for uh, the, the most wise members of each state to become these electors, to select from a slate of candidates the best option the most qualified option to become president. Um, right. Well, and at that time there were no political parties. Mm-hmm. So they weren't envisioning um, candidates that were being nominated by their respective political parties that, you know, gave all of that specific kind of support and such. Yes. And I, I actually do want to read off a quote from Federalist 68 because uh, I, I I, I kind of think it's one of those things that didn't age very well, and uh, I, I just figured I'd share it. So it says, the process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Interesting. Yes. Um. Uh, I, I, I think uh, none of us are morally certain of that anymore (laughs) right for sure well and so i what i was able to gather about this there were two kind of camps because there was the one camp that was like well we'll just have congress elect the president um, and they can just make that decision because they're going to be elected by the people so they should be representative granted we didn't have even close to the population that we currently have um and so they, they figured, well, the House, they'll be able to do that. And, but then there was another camp that said, no, that's too much power for them to have. And it stifles the voice of the people. And so, yes. you know, maybe we should have a popular vote and just have, you know, everyone vote. But then a, a bunch of concerns arose about using purely the popular vote. Um, they thought that voters were not going to be educated enough um, in some of the rural parts specifically in order to make an informed decision about among the candidates. You know, mm-hmm. you have to remember this was a time where they didn't have TV, they didn't have uh, podcasts, they didn't have, um, you know, radio where they were hearing regular things from the people that were running for office. So they, th- they figured people are not going to be educated, so this is going to be a problem. And then there was also concern that it would be dangerous to have um, like just a purely populist president that's advocating solely to, or that's, you know, working specifically with the people and using a bunch of rhetoric that might not even be feasible, uh, Donald Trump, for example, um, that is, you know, getting the most votes simply with their message without having the actual qualifications to do the job. Um, Exactly. 
but then on top of that, there was also the um, the issue of the three fifths compromise that came in as they were deciding how how they were going to do this um, as they started to take form, thinking about the electoral system and how this might work, um, having these intermediaries and the states weighing in with the independent electors again, independent because there were no political parties at that time. Um, and then the, the Southern states were like, whoa, 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 we're not gonna get our representation that we need because we have all these slaves that aren't voting and so they're not accounted for in our representation. And so the North is going to dramatically overweigh us in power. And so boom, boom, you end up with the three-fifths compromise. Do you wanna talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, well, first and foremost, racist as hell. So, yeah, they essentially came to this quote-unquote compromise that uh, enslaved people would count for three-fifths of a person when it came to uh, deciding how many representatives each of the southern states would have. And in turn... Right, and this was in the House of Representatives, right? Which yes. then affects the electors. Yes. So it was aimed at the house but had consequences for the electoral college and essentially it was uh it was just the south wanting to bolster their own power which uh i guess is a common theme of balance that they wanted to go for but it was extremely racist and right like to say yeah. that to say that <laughs> like, we're going to count um, three-fifths of our slaves as human, first of all, mm -hmm. was incredibly racist. But then on top of that, to use their slave owning to gain them yet more power to continue to retain their slaves and, yep. and then not allow those slaves to vote. So congratulations, exactly. you're here. I get more power because you're here, but you don't get a say. Exactly. Uh, not to mention they also just for posterity's sake they had other uh racist provisions put into the constitution as well including a ban on banning the slave trade until a certain year interesting yeah i it's it's really incredible when you think about like the intense amount of ingrained and institutional racism that was built into the founding of this country. And when people say, oh, we're not a racist country, we're not talking about whether you smiled at someone who was a different skin tone than you when you were shopping at Meyer Karen. We're talking about the institutions that we have built that have been built on top of one another in a very racist fashion from the founding of this country. And those are the systems that need to be fundamentally changed for us to be able to uh, to actually make a difference and an impact in the racism in our communities and in our, you know, in our states, in our country, um, and frankly around the world. But I, I think a lot of people miss that, that racism is not just whether you smile or not, just like, you know, like homophobia is not whether you are, have a gay friend. You know, if you go to the polls and vote for someone who is actively trying to take away their rights, that is advocating and voting for an institutional set of policies that will be actively homophobic as an institution. So absolutely. Yeah. And another point on that three-fifths quote unquote compromise, they also specifically 
cut out indigenous people from representation as well. Yeah, and is that is that standing today? I mean, I think at this point we're allowed we allow people who are on like Native American reservations to cast their votes as part of their state, correct? Yes, uh, citizenship was eventually extended, and uh, the Three Fifths Compromise was entirely uh, repealed. So importantly, amid all of this, that's how they established the Electoral College as it was. Um, political parties formed, and as soon as they did, um, you know, the Democratic and Republican Party, which have shifted in their ideologies over a period of time, eventually became the primary parties that we see today that have the most power and the system continues to grant them the most power because of the system. So like the system itself grants them this power for which they then have the power to enact changes or not changes to the very system that grants them that power. Yes, indeed. Um, and the first example of that is the 12th Amendment, where because of the rise of political parties, the whole system of two votes for president and then the, the first becomes president and the second becomes vice president, it just didn't work with the party system because they had to try to uh, game the system a little bit to ensure that their presidential candidate had the most and their vice presidential candidate had the second. And the, the election that brought that to the head was the election... I believe of 1804. Yes. Wait, no. Well, and, and that's yep. why you see them on the that's ticket. That's 1800, later. excuse me. <laughs> 1800, okay. Yes. Very close. So that's why you see their names on the, the ticket at the, together then is because you can't vote for a different president and a different vice president. Yes. And so then there, the election of 1800, uh, that was Jefferson and Burr running on the same ticket. And I'm sure anybody who's seen Hamilton or listened to Hamilton knows exactly where this is going. But essentially, sure. it, it that this was the uh, first that went to the House of Representatives for a contingent election because of that whole misstep where somebody didn't get the memo, and so Jefferson and Burr tied. Gotcha. Okay. And then they had to make that decision. Yeah. Yes. And Adams was the third highest uh, electoral vote getter. But the issue there was that everybody knew that Adams wasn't going to get reelected. So the Federalists were trying to game the system even back then to put Burr in over Jefferson. Gotcha. Okay. And yeah. so after, after Jefferson eventually won, the 12th Amendment was put through Congress to get around this and then ingrains political parties into the system because then you have that one vote for president, one vote for vice president. Sure. Yeah. So outright power grabs. And interestingly, none of the assumptions that the founding fathers had at the time that they created the electoral college actually ended up proving to be true. Um, part of that was the political party formation, but then also the electors voting, um, not as independent, but based on political parties. And then also the, the, change, the change that was made with the political parties that now states um, require, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning, that it, you're, all of the electors from one state now vote based on the, their state's popular vote getter. And so that results in um, 
you know, it's different. It's not independent electors like they once thought. There's not that same independence. Um, and then they also assumed that the House would decide um, without a majority of electors because there were going to be more than two popular vote, like top popular vote getters or top electoral vote getters. So, all right. So we've talked about kind of the history where this came from and how it currently is enacted. Um, so what would it take for us to change this electoral college system? Because I know there's a lot of frustration having had uh, multiple elections now, even in, in our recent memory, um, where the popular vote getter did not win the electoral college as well. And it just kind of calls into question why, whose votes are important? Um, why are some people's votes less important? When you look at, like you talked about population, um, I did the math here and the state of California has 39.51 million residents, um, which means that every one of their electors in the electoral college, this is not their, their house representation, but in the electoral college, they get one elector for every 718,363 residents. So 718,000 people collectively get one elector. Mm -hmm. In Wyoming, the least populous state, there's only 580,000 total residents. Yep. So less residents than even one elector in California gets. And so with their 580,000 residents, they get still get three electoral votes, one for each senator and one for their representative. One elector in Wyoming represents only 193,000 residents. Mm -hmm. That's dramatic. That is a dramatic difference. That it is. What do you think about that? What are your feelings about that? <laughs> well, you know, in the terms of balancing, a lot of people argue that that makes it fair. That makes those smaller states more represented by whoever becomes the president or like they're at least more represented in terms of um, power in the election. I can't quite agree with that. Um, in, in my kind of view, the, the president is like the whole country's president. Sure, we should all have a say in who the president is. But when you shift that balance of power between the states in that kind of way, to me, it seems like a different valuation of each person's vote rather than just making things quote unquote fair if that right, makes because, sense because like if i mean truthfully the way that the house of representatives specifically is laid out um probably needs to be reevaluated at some point in terms of the number of representatives mm -hmm. because it's just so disproportionately off in terms of the the population of a state but then also like when you think about the senate and everyone having those automatic two senators that gives them a disproportionate amount of power both in the Senate and then again when the Electoral College is um, called up to act every four years on the presidential election. Um, it just, and, and some of the arguments against that I've heard um, is that people will say, well, if we don't you know, have this same power, then we're never gonna see our presidential candidate. They're not gonna come to our small states. They're not going to campaign here because it'll be, 
um, a foregone conclusion that the, the most populous cities are going to be where all the control comes from. Mm. Well, newsflash, that's already the case. Absolutely. When was the last time you saw a Democrat campaigning in South Dakota or a Republican campaigning in California? I mean, I, Trump might have gone to California a time or two, but I mean, New York, California, um, like some of these blue strongholds, you never see a Republican presidential candidate campaigning there. And the same is true of these smaller states in the middle of the country. There's no reason for a, Repub or for a Democrat to go campaign there because those states are also a foregone conclusion. So you're already not getting heard. Whereas if it was a popular vote system, they actually still need your votes. And so that, that argument to me just doesn't hold water. Absolutely. And again, land does not vote. Yep. So and state another lines, state lines are, are artificial. We drew those state lines. We decided to make this state line between these two districts of population like that doesn't, that shouldn't change where your geographic location shouldn't change your worth. Absolutely. Not to mention in sort of a combination of those two things you said about like where people go and land not voting, the, a, a lot of times these candidates are focusing on the highest number electoral vote states that can swing to them. So Ohio and Florida, for example, they both have some of the highest electoral vote counts in the country, as well as large populations within the country. And so they're focusing on those two because they swing. They can go back or forth depending on the year and the candidate. Right. So and, like Ohio can expect to have people there every election. Exactly. To to. Exactly. And so this whole idea of making these smaller states able to be part of the conversation, have a say, and help the outcome of the election, it just, the argument doesn't hold water when these candidates are still focusing on the highest number of electoral votes that they can get. Wyoming or South Dakota's three electoral votes would be nice to have in your category, uh, but the candidates are going to spend the time with 29 votes in Florida. Yes, absolutely. Well, and here's the other argument too, is like people think that voices aren't being heard. Well, how do you think Republicans in California feel? Mm -hmm. Like California at this point is a foregone conclusion of 55 electoral votes for Democrats. And yet there's still millions of Republicans who go out and vote and their voice doesn't get heard because they're in a blue state. And the same thing is true in, you know, some of the, the highly Republican states. Like in Texas, Texas came the closest I've seen it to being even close to a battleground this year. And yet, you know, all of these people went out and voted Democratic and their votes don't matter. I mean, they do, but they, at the same time, they're really not counted when the final results are tallied. And I just think that that's kind of a shame and it's disenfranchising when you think about like demotivating rather, when you think about right. what is my motivation to go out and vote, if I just know it's a foregone conclusion that my, my beliefs are always going to be superseded, then what, what is the motivation behind having my voice heard? Right. Um, so there's been some some arguments against using the popular vote as well. 
Um, a couple of those arguments, you know, being like we just talked about, like not visiting small states. Um, another one that has been brought up is, and this was one that an argument that was made, I guess, early on when this was also when the Electoral College was being created, was that if it was based purely on the popular vote and you had a really close election, then all 50 states would have to do a recount rather than just having like, you know, if Georgia's too close to call, then they recount the state of Georgia. And then that may or may not affect the Electoral College. Whereas if you had a popular vote and the candidates were within, say, you know, 2,000 votes of each other by some miraculous thing, um, then you would need all 50 states to do their recounts in order to have an accurate, which like, yeah, so it would, it would result in more work if a recount was necessary, but I don't think the work of doing a recount is a good enough reason to stifle millions of, of people's votes. Absolutely. Uh, not to mention that in a lot of states already, the recounts have to be funded by the campaign requesting it. So I, I would argue that maybe in that circumstance, it's not wasting taxpayer money, but it is bolstering taxpayer confidence in the election itself. Sure. And I, and to be fair, I mean, even using this electoral college system, the last several elections have been millions of votes apart. So it's not like that situation seems highly likely. Um, and I, I just hate the idea of, um, flushing democracy down the toilet or the potential for more authentic democracy because we think we might have to at some point possibly do something difficult. Absolutely. Um, so if we if we did want to change the electoral college as it currently stands, what what would that take if you were looking just at the structure of it itself? Like if you wanted to quote unquote abolish the electoral college, what would that take? Yeah. So the only way to actually abolish the Electoral College is through another constitutional amendment. Uh, and that can either be done through Congress itself or by the states calling for a convention for the purpose of amending the Constitution. Okay, so a constitutional convention like what happened in that, that Philly Constitutional Convention in 87, 1787, I should be specific. Um, and to correct me if I'm wrong, but to change the actual constitution, it would take a two-thirds majority of both houses of Congress, as well as a three three quarters of the states to then ratify that after it's been voted on. Yes. And that's a very large uphill battle, um, especially with polarization and the parties not necessarily being willing to take that step or maybe not even being able to get to the two-thirds, even if you have bipartisan support. Sure. Well, and then on the state side, too, thinking about um, three quarters of states, um, as we just talked about, you know, there's all these little states that already have outsized power um, and don't would I mean, nobody's going to vote to give themselves less power in this day and age. It's just not it's just not heard of, unfortunately. Yes, um, indeed. So one of the other potential routes around the Electoral College that I've uh, been made aware of and I've read a little bit about um, is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, um, mm -hmm. which I know you have some feelings about in terms of what, <laughs> it, what 
the legal ramifications could be. But for listeners, I'm just going to outline what the idea behind it is. Essentially, there's already been 16 states that have ratified this, and it basically would say that if your state has ratified this compact, um, that your your state's electoral votes, rather than going for your state's popular vote winner, would go to the national popular vote winner. So even if you're, um, you know, say in Wyoming, and you have your three electoral votes, and you often go red, then in this instance, if a Democrat were to win the popular vote, then your electoral votes would then go to support that. And vice versa, if you were in, you know, California, and a Republican won the popular vote, then your 55 electoral votes would go to the Republican candidate. Um, So there's 16 states that have done this so far, um, which accounts for about 196 electoral votes. Um, And the, the way that this compact is written is it would only kick in if over 270 electoral votes worth of states ratified this. So it doesn't kick in in the interim. It would only kick in if enough states have ratified it for it to go through. And then it would essentially bypass the Electoral College by assigning those Electoral College votes to the popular vote winner. What are your your thoughts on it? Because I've heard some questions about constitutionality and, and things of that nature. What's your thoughts? Yeah, so when I first learned about it, I thought it was a very interesting idea. I thought, hey, like, maybe that's a way that we can get to the popular vote. And then as I'm taking a look at it, there are a lot of constitutional barriers to it. The one that is brought up most often and scholars have discussed and tried to rule out is the compact clause of the constitution. And so that clause essentially says that states can't form interstate compacts with each other without congressional approval. Interesting. Okay. And so uh, some of the scholars have said that, well, there's even a question as to whether this is actually an interstate compact or not. And the Supreme Court has in certain uh, cases, I believe, said that uh, if it doesn't change like the political balance between the states or doesn't change Uh, the balance between the federal government and the states, then you're good to go. No worries. Um, But I don't think that that argument necessarily holds water for the NPVIC. Which if people want to learn more about that, it's nationalpopularvote.org is the website that you would go to, to learn more about the, the interstate compact. And yeah, you're right. Like it, I mean, it is called obviously an interstate compact, but it also for each state only affects what that state's vote does, right? So like if Michigan ratified it, it doesn't say that we're now telling Ohio that they have to do the same thing. Ohio still gets to vote on whether they want to join the compact or not, whether they want to take that same approach. Right. And But then on the flip side, there's the argument that all these states who are coming together to form this compact are actually negatively impacting those that are not in the compact. Because whereas before they had the ability to actually impact the election, now 
their electoral votes won't have any difference in the election because 270 have signed on to the special compact where not everybody else is signed in. And so regardless of how they voted, this compact would supersede them in political power because they hold that majority. Sure, and I can see that argument, but that's literally the point of getting rid of the Electoral College <laughs> is so that the person who gets the most votes wins. But yeah, I oh, can see I, yep. all kinds of challenges. Oh, I, yeah. I just think it's, it's kind of um, a, a far off dream when people say abolish the Electoral College because honestly, I don't think that either political party is really going to be advocating for that as, as a party, only because I think that the existence of political parties is benefited by having the electoral college system. And so it's, it's hard, again, to get someone who is benefiting from the powers that exist to change the powers that exist. Absolutely. And then the second big sort of uh, argument against the national popular vote interstate compact from my sort of looking at it. And again, I'm a law student. I don't have the expertise in this at all. This is just my, you know, personal opinion. But it seems to me that the NPVIC violates the uh, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment under this one person, one vote principle, where one person's vote should be equal to another person's vote. Like, nobody's vote should be above or below another person's. And And I get that argument, but I would also say that the Electoral College itself defies that principle. I agree. But my, my problem is then is that in order to remedy the vote dilution of the Electoral College, instead of getting rid of vote dilution, the NPVIC just shifts how the votes are diluted. Sure. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a tough a tough situation. So is there anything aside from abolishing the Electoral College at the constitutional amendment level or the NPVIC, is there any other route that you can see to how we might change the system? Um, There are some proposals that we go back to this idea of electoral districts in each state where uh, each, like, each electoral vote would have its own district within the state, but then you have the same possibility for gerrymandering that you do with the House. Um, and it, it seems to work well in Maine and Nebraska, but um, it also just, that makes it even more based off of land and has the opportunity again for gerrymandering. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've heard that, that could be an intermediate remedy Um, would be expanding the number of representatives in the House Mm -hmm. and trying to apportion them by um, a smaller threshold of population. That way you can account for if there's one representative in a state like Wyoming, for example, then whatever that number of population is that um, their electors or their, that their representative, for example, represents, not the electors, that their representative would represent could then also be the same number of people that are representative in all other congressional districts for other states, which still doesn't account for the the balance from the senators, but could make it a little bit more fair in terms of how many electors we have and, and how many representatives we have and how representative that is of the will of the people. 
Absolutely. And that's where the the NPBIC again, like I I I think that it's trying to do a good thing. I think that it's trying to make the pop the national popular vote front and center stage as it should be. The current laws that we have, the systemic ingrained institutions of how we do things that might be the factor of blocking it. Um, not to mention that a lot of times from my readings of different court decisions, the courts, their job is to safeguard the laws that are written uh, in the constitution. And a lot of times like, you know, you have your differences between originalists, textualists, and like people who look at the purpose um, of the constitution and will read different things into it in different ways. Uh, but one thing that it kind of boils down to is that the courts don't like it when you're trying to circumvent something, no matter how creative a way it is, but they will still be like, this goes beyond creative thinking and goes into you're just trying to avoid a procedure within the constitution to remedy a harm. And a lot of times they'll say, we appreciate you trying to remedy this harm, but it's you're not doing it in the procedurally correct way. Right, like there has to be some sort of legal change um, to the Constitution in order to be able to make a lot of those changes. Right, and like we mentioned earlier, that is extremely difficult. And and that's where maybe, maybe I'll be wrong. And if the NPVIC goes into effect and is challenged in the courts, maybe they'll uphold it. And if they do that, there we go. That's the ball game. Uh, popular vote. There we are. Um, however, I do think and that we've got our new controversial Supreme Court case. Yeah, there we <laughs> to go. Argue about for decades. <laughs> right there we are, and that that's that's uh, another reason for me too is like eventually maybe there's a political shift and then a certain amount of states withdraw from it, and then it goes out of effect again and we're back to the electoral college. Um, but I don't know. To to wrap that to wrap that up, I I would applaud if the NPBIC worked. I really would. But the only for sure guaranteed way to abolish the Electoral College once and hopefully for all would be a constitutional amendment. However, I do realize the uh, the realistic expectations of that probably not happening. <laughs> Sure. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've covered everything here. So um, was there anything else you wanted to add to this conversation about the Electoral College or popular vote before we go? Uh, well, vote often, people. Every two-ish years, we have an election. You might have some local elections in between those as well. Pay attention to your electoral schedules and keep on fighting. Yeah, I, I recommend look at every November because we have a city commission election next November. And that's I think that's going to be all except maybe there will be some other proposals and millages at the local level. But yeah, um, vote in every election and do your research. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much for joining today, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm going to provide the information for the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact website. I misspoke in the recording, and it's actually 
nationalpopularvote.com, not .org. So I'll include that in the description for this episode. Also, keep your eyes on the Georgia Senate runoffs. Um, The election occurs on January 5th, but there's time between now and then if you want to make contributions. I'm also going to include the link for that in the description for this episode to help hopefully flip those two Senate seats to blue and give Biden control and ability to actually enact some of these policies without Mitch McConnell holding him back. If you have not yet done so, please do um, follow my Instagram at mitten underscore politics and like my Facebook page at Mitten Politics with no underscore or anything. And there is also a Twitter if you are on Twitter. That's Mitten at Mitten underscore politics. If you ever have any questions, you can submit them through those social media accounts or email me at uh, mittenpolitics at gmail.com with no spaces or underlines, underscores, anything like that. And I'd be happy to take any questions you have, any topics that you'd like me to do episodes on, people that you think I should reach out to to try and record with. I would love any of your input. Thank you so much, and we will see you in a couple weeks.